Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. This is exciting. We have Brian Seaman, who's going to be on today. He is, he's competed in the Paralympics twice. He's competed in the World Championships five times. He is going to compete in Tokyo for a third Paralympic Games. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. And you're coming from your office where you are an access specialist at the University of Illinois. It really, when you guys get there, they can't really get rid of you, can they? I, I know, I think that's much to Adam's chagrin. We never leave. Um, so yeah, no, I, I came out to the University of Illinois back in, oh goodness, 2008. And I truly had no intention of ever um, living here this long. I, I think had I known I would have bought a house a lot sooner because I just kept renting apartments. Um, and so, yeah, so I came out in 2008. Uh, I did my uh, bachelor's degree here, um, English and secondary education. And then that was, I finished that in 2013. So it was sort of this weird time between the London games had just finished and then, you know, deciding that I was going to try to do Rio again. And I didn't have anything else to do. So I was like, well, I might as well go get a master's degree while I was here. <laughs> um, and so then I, I got a master's degree in special education. Um, that took me right up to Rio. Um, and I just then at that point after Rio kind of was like, what am I doing? And Tokyo was still in the cards. And so then I was like, all right, well, I need to get a job. And, and this job kind of um, through a series of circumstances kind of opened up and uh, yeah, it's kind of been the perfect fit for both training and, and being able to work at the same time. And what is an access, an access specialist? Yeah, so, so uh, an access specialist is um, someone who works um, within the disability services office. Um, they're, you know, throughout the country. Um, and basically, we, our main role is to make sure that students um, with disabilities have um, the right supports and access to, to academic accommodations. Um, here at the University of Illinois, we kind of take that one step further and we do a lot of um, sort of, we call extras. And so we all, there are seven of us total and we all have different backgrounds. So there are two of us that have, um, are educators um, and then we have several uh, other access specialists who have degrees in social work or uh, they're licensed clinical psychologists. And so we all kind of do something extra. And so they might do mental health therapy um, but as an educator, I wanted to really focus on working with students. And so um, outside of my main role um, of just making sure the accommodations are set up and making sure that things are, classes are accessible, all that fun stuff, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work with the, the students on my caseload, um, doing things like executive functioning coaching, uh, doing writing workshops, um, kind of providing uh, reading strategies, uh, things that that make sure that students uh, who might have a learning disability or ADHD specifically um, kind of have those supports um, to be successful here at the university. The supports and the strategies to really make it happen. Yeah. I do want to get into Tokyo. Can we get into Tokyo? Yeah, and, let's and talk about sports. I want to ask, and, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to sound like a jerk on this one, but, but what I want to ask is what you've been doing to ensure that you're not going to finish in fourth in the 800, which I mean, the thing is, I can ask that because 
finishing fourth would have been great for me. I don't think I ever finished fourth in a world championship or, or a Paralympics, but you seem to have finished fourth. I mean, painfully so, right? Two hundredths in, in Rio, right? And, and you thought you were there and, and Lakatos came, came right at the end. So it looks like you've been doing some stuff. What are you doing to ensure that you're not going to be fourth in Rio? Yeah, that's, you know, I think I would win a gold medal if it was uh, for fourth place finishes because I love to, to get that. Um, yeah, no, it does suck. I think the probably the the thing that, you know, you always after Rio specifically, you know, I finished that race and I was like in my head, I was like, I think I got this. Like I was like real excited. And um, I, I don't know how many people know the the experience of going around the turn, you're going like 20 plus miles an hour, still coasting around the turn, waiting for that result to come up and then looking up and seeing that it was someone else. <laughs> and the, um, both the uh, expletives that are going through your head, but also sort of the like disappointment as well. Um, and then it happened again <laughs> at world championships. So, so that was fun. Um, you know, I think for me going, leading into this, uh, the 800 is really one of my um, my main focus events. And so, um, you know, I'm lucky that we have such a great training crew here that really, um, were able to do race tactics and, and really, um, kind of try different things out, um, in training. So I can kind of know what, how to better position myself so that, um, it doesn't come down to that, you know, two hundredths of a second. Um, and then also, you know, again, the crew that we train with here, we're always just pushing each other, you know, a little bit harder, a little bit faster every day. And so that I think is such a huge benefit uh, going into the games that, um, you know, it makes me feel confident that when I get on that start line, I know it's going to be fast. It's going to be, um, it's, it's going to be tough, but the training sessions that we've done, you know, this entire specifically, I mean, really the pet, you know, this whole year um, really, once we've started to focus on the games, I, you know, I feel pretty confident. Um, that hopefully we can pull something out. Now, some of it also seems like with your setup though too, right? Am I right in saying that you've dropped your knees down a bit from where you were sitting in Rio? And why would you do that? Yeah, you know, um, I have gone through and probably much to um, some of my teammates, Aaron specifically, and then Adam's probably annoyance of trying to figure out sort of the best chair position for me. Um, I, I kind of feel like, and you understand how within the sport of wheelchair racing, it is like everything is so specific when you get to this level that there's really such a slim margin of error that you can make in terms of these adjustments and, and how big of a difference they make when you perform. And so um, after Rio, there was that kind of that reevaluation of like, okay, what can I do differently so that I can um, you know, maybe push a little bit faster, um, so that I can roll a little bit better and maybe attack a little bit better. And, and, and what does my position look like? And so, um, you know, we never, you know, I, I don't want to say we never, cause I did, I did buy a chair that had my knees completely down, kind of like, um, Brent Lactose does mm -hmm. thinking that I would somehow have the function to do that. Um, spoiler alert, I didn't. Um, so that was just a lot of wasted money after that racing chair. Someone else is using it now though. So explain what that means though. Cause I mean, you're a T53. So the specific part of like having your knees down, why you might do that 
and why you couldn't take advantage of it the way Brent does. Yeah. So I have no, like, so I'm a, my injury level is like here. And so I have no function. So if I rely on my knees when I'm in my racing chair to, to provide me with that sort of support so that when I'm pushing, I'm able to like, I'm not actually moving my core at all because I can't, I don't have that function, but it, it gives me that support so that I'm able to use my arms and, and, and to power through with the stroke. But when you, you, so they need to, they need to be on an angle for me. And I thought that somehow I would be able, by going flat, it might make me more aerodynamic and more efficient. However, it just sort of made it so that I was just laying down and my arms kind of were flailing. I had no, no, I couldn't really get any driving motion with the stroke. And so it was just very much like I was just flailing my arms around and it very, I knew very quickly it, it wasn't going to work. Um, and that's kind of one of those things that if you know, you know, and so you just kind of move on. Um, and so after that sort of drastic kind of change, because in my head, the way I operate is that I get this idea in my head and I have to, like, I wouldn't let it go. Like, I was like, I have to be able to do this because if, the, if this is going to make me efficient and roll better, then that's what I need. And I wouldn't be content unless I tried it. And, but you can't just do that in a racing chair. You can always add more foam, more things to make it so that you can raise your knees, but you can't just drop your knee, your knee plate down. So I had a... Adam, uh, uh, you know, indulged my, my, he told me it wasn't going to work, but he indulged my, my, um, my, hypo my hypothesis about this. And, um, you know, we just moved, moved on to, after that didn't work, we moved on. So then we went to, we went to slightly different um, sort of adjustments. Um, and yeah, I think slightly lowering my, my knees, um, bringing my butt up a little bit. Um, so that I might have a little bit of a better angle in the chair. Um, and then this year specifically, um, I changed my gloves. I, I finally moved from uh, flat gloves to like the, the trigger gloves. Um, that was a, a long learning experience that Adam's been trying to get me to do for years. And um, I would get frustrated and then I, I would stop and we finally decided to, to do it this year. Uh, and so, so yeah, so some good changes too. So now I feel like I'm kind of in a pretty locked in position and, and pretty happy with where things are. I'm, I'm still always thinking about ways to, to better improve my chair, my, my chair setup, but I'm feeling pretty good right now. What about the neuroplasticity stuff that you've been doing? The, the halo stuff, is that, is that something you're continuing to do? And, and what, what is neuroplasticity? How might that have worked for you? And why were you such a good case study? I think maybe because I'm so, I'm going to say maybe, I don't know if it's a placebo effect or what, but I mean, I do really feel that it, um, you know, every, you, there are so many things um, in terms of technology and things that you can incorporate into your, your, your sort of training setup and, and kind of what you do leading up to, to a workout or a session. And that for me, it was, you could, you could sort of, you could feel it as it was doing it. And so then that to me, kind of triggered, okay, well, it's stimulating your brain and it's, it's sort of activating these neurons and things like that. And so, so I don't know if it was, again, maybe I'm just that positive, like that positive sort of reinforcement of, okay, I'm feeling something. So let's perform in a way that, you know, you can push yourself further because, you know, you're able to, or what it's doing. I don't do the science stuff. I just, you know, it, it works. I feel like it works. Um, I, I, what specifically was it doing? I mean, what, what were you trying to do? So I, you know, um, you would, 
the one that that I was doing was well the first one I used was the the halo um like headset and and you would sort of it was it kind of looked like a big pair of head like like Bose headphones that you could you could wear and had these these attachment pads that had they looked like spikes sort of um, and you would just sort of get them wet that that would create that initial contact point and then you would just put it on your head about um, I think it would be a 20 minute it's usually like a 20 minute sort of cycle that it runs through and what it does is it runs through these different variations of like stimulation um, in your in your head sort of just like I don't want to say electric like it's like electrocuting because it's not it's much more mild than that but it's stim it's like stim electric stimulation sort of um and so you did have to worry if you like had hair product in your hair because it would sometimes feel like a little bit of burning but um and what it would do is it would sort of open up these neurons um you know and synapses in your brain that would sort of then help your body respond and so um we did that for I did that for a, a pretty long time. And then um, we actually then kind of switched to something new that was um, a like a similar function, but it was behind your ear instead. So it was much more portable, which was nice. Um, and apparently the ear like here was a better contact point to, um, to activate those sorts of um, like, you know, uh, neurons and stuff and to get everything going better. And so, so that I would just sort of stick here and you would just, um, you would just kind of pull this like tab and it would just sort of activate. And then, um, yeah, you'd leave that on for, I think it was like 15 minutes and then um, go do your workout. And so I would always feel like, again, I don't know the science of it all, but I know that the days that we would do those, I would use those, um, the pads or the, the headphones, there was a, like performance benefit either in like my my max speed or even just my ability to maintain my um like my average speed for a longer period of time than the sessions when i was not using it and so um for me that's always you know what you see a positive result there and so you keep doing it because it works and you went you went 10 minutes faster at boston right yeah yeah that was which boston again i am like I'm not really a marathoner and Boston specifically, you always feel very accomplished when you finish Boston because it is so hard. But when you start Boston, it's it's downhill. And I, I like to joke that I'm so skinny that I mean half the field drops me on the downhill at the start of the race. Like I was so happy when they decided to start staggering, you know, uh, controlling the start again because I was like, I'd always just everyone would just drop me. And then I spend most of the race trying to like reel people in climbing because I'm a much better climber. Um, but yeah, so I had a great, that, that, the year that I did that for Boston, that was, um, you know, I, I really, I, yeah, that was the first time I actually, I was like, I really feel like I enjoyed this marathon. Like it wasn't so, uh, painful and just so, I don't say miserable, but it was, you know, I enjoyed the marathon, which, um, everyone that knows me knows how much I just love marathons, even though I do them all the time. That is funny. But so, so really, so, so this is kind of reorienting the pathways, your, neuro, your neurological pathways and kind of reprioritizing and helping you, helping you to, to strengthen what you want to strengthen and, and, and not necessarily uh, strengthen what you don't want to strengthen. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a great idea now. 
so so we've had we've had the seating position. We have we have the neuroplasticity. I'm wondering if you're are you are you saving a couple of uh, a couple of hundreds on your on your face here? Is this uh, I mean are, are you, are you going to be like a swimmer and, and shave and taper if it was uh, if it was two one hundredths of a second? Do you think there's you think you have two one hundredths of a second there? You know, my mom would love me to to shave my beard. Um, I don't know yet. I haven't decided what I'm doing. This took a very long time to grow, and um, it started because I was I you know I got lazy like two for like two weekends and I just didn't shave, and then I was like, oh, let's see what happens, and I've come to really like it. It's like Aaron Pike's beard. He's now known for his beard. Like, I don't think Aaron hasn't had a beard now for like, I don't know, close to nine years or something. So I don't know. I, I almost thought the other day I was going to shave it. And then I was like, I don't know. Like now I've come to really like it. So I haven't decided what I'm doing for my, for my Tokyo sort of look in terms of the facial hair, because I don't know. I feel like if you go through my evolution of London, I was, I had no hair <laughs> and then I had a, just a shaved head and then Rio, I had hair, but no beard. And now I have hair and beard. So I think it's like, it really separates each of my, my looks for the Paralympics. You will be able to recognize it in whatever, exactly. whatever photo there is. What do you, what do you do well? I mean, we're talking about this fourth place kind of thing. What is it that you do well? Because we're we're talking about some of the people you're up against. We mentioned Brent Lakatos, who who has just a tremendous top end speed. Uh, Peo from from Thailand, similar kind of thing. And especially, in, it seems like he gained a couple of miles an hour when he showed up in in Rio. I don't know exactly how that worked. Uh, you certainly you have uh, uh, you have Pierre who 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 seems to keep doing it. I mean, I I remember Ray, he looks the same now as the first time that I saw him race back in 95. I know I, I want to know what's in the French water because Pierre still looks incredible. He pushes incredible. It's it's just phenomenal. Um, yeah, no, there is, you know, the 53 field globally is very strong. And so um, it's it's always exciting kind of to to see who you're going to like race in in each of the events because you know, someone who might make the final in the 400 won't make it in the eight. Like they're, we're just, we're pretty stacked in terms of um, across the, the class disciplines. For me, I think one of my, I think my strength is, is my rolling acceleration. I'm able to, to accelerate very quickly. And so I can, um, you know, I, I feel very confident in my ability to respond to attacks if they happen. Um, because I know that I can, I can kind of quickly get up there again, um, or I could make an attack if, if I am deciding to be aggressive in the race. Um, and so I think I can roll and accelerate pretty well. Um, and, you know, we've been working on a lot of um, not only just, you know, using that, that rolling acceleration, but trying to improve that top end speed to keep up with, with Brent and Pio, because again, they're, they're just up there and, and that's, that top end speed is really important as well, especially in like an 800. Yeah, because then you have to you have to position yourself well, mm -hmm. and then plan your acceleration. If the acceleration part is what you do well, you have to plan that acceleration at the right time so that they're not, you know, so, so that it's before anybody else comes up to speed. 
Yep, pretty much. I mean, that's like, I mean, you you know how it's like, there's always, it's like everyone's jostling for that right around like 500 or so. And then it's everyone's kind of waiting for that one person to make the move, but you have to be prepared for that because if we're all pushing so well and so fast that it's like, you'd have to be pushing that much faster than everyone else if you aren't anticipating that or aren't able to, to keep up with them. And so, so I think that that's a benefit for me that I'm able to, I feel good about being able to do that. Um, and so, yeah, it's then it's just all about that, the tactics of racing and, and making sure you're in that right position. Yeah, and that that acceleration actually benefits you, that you're not having to accelerate from the back of the pack to the front of the pack, and then you don't have anything left by the time you get to the front of the pack. You finally get up there and then everyone comes around you again. They're like, what were you doing? Like, I wanted to make sure that you knew that I was in the race. Now you know that I'm in the race and go have a good one. Yeah. So, so yes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we'd rather avoid that one. So so working on the acceleration. But for you, it's this was kind of a surprise, wasn't it? Even getting into, into wheelchair racing back in high school. How did that work? What 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 happened? I mean, I've read some of the story, but what happened? Yeah. Um I joke to everyone that like, I am not an athlete. Like I somehow lucked into this because I had no athletic like bone in my body. I was, um, yeah. So growing up, um, there were not really a whole lot of opportunities for, uh, you know, you know, disabled kids to participate in sports. I think, you know, my parents had looked, um, there was a period of time when I was really interested in trying to do wheelchair basketball, which now looking back at that is hysterical because I am really not coordinated. So why I was so intent on doing wheelchair basketball is beyond me. Um, but yeah, so it kind of became one of those things that there weren't really many opportunities. Um, and yeah, I just didn't really have an interest. So I, I didn't even like pursue it much further either. Um, and then on my first day of high school, um, my, my then high school coach, uh, he just saw me in the cafeteria and he came up to me and he asked me if I had a broken leg or if I was in my wheelchair permanently, um, which is, you know, a very a, sort of abrupt and rude question to ask someone you don't know. But I said, uh, yeah, I'm in the chair permanently. And he said, oh, okay. He's like, well, do you want to come out for the track team? And I, I looked at him and I said, uh, I just told you I can't walk. <laughs> and uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I've seen other kids um, in wheelchairs at the, the state meet. Um, he's like, I've never coached a kid in a wheelchair before, but if you're willing to give it a try, so am I. And I said yes, because I don't like confrontation. I don't like saying no to people. So, uh, so I didn't know what I was getting into. I'd never seen wheelchair racing before at all. I had no, like the whole concept was just foreign to me. I really had no idea what I was getting into. I think like, I didn't even think I was going to do it past a year. Like I was like, okay, I said yes to this. I'll just like do it. And then just sort of saunter off and do something else, something later. Um, and so uh, my high school actually raised the money for my first racing chair. Um, they found a local sports program, a juniors program for uh, children's specialized hospital lightning wheels in New Jersey. Um, that was about an hour away. Um, and they got me set up with them. And yeah, um, so I got measured for a chair in, I don't know, October, November. And by January or so, I had my, my first racing chair and I, I learned the technical aspects of wheelchair racing and like compensator and all that fun stuff 
from my juniors team, but I worked out every day with my, my high school track team, which is a very atypical experience for a lot of other um, kids with disabilities in their high school. I was a full member of the team. There was, I raced alongside runners. Um, there was never any sort of like separation. Um, it was truly sort of a, like an incredible experience that looking back on it now, especially like I didn't know how much a racing chair cost at the time and, and how much money my school raised for that, which that's such a huge gamble for some chubby kid who had never done wheelchair racing before. And you're like, here you go, here's a $5,000 chair. Like, um, and so, yeah, so I, I started doing it and I, you know, it was, uh, it was fun to the extent that running is fun and not painful. Um, but it was, it was something that I, I enjoyed doing. I was like, okay, I can keep doing this. I, I got involved at, um, you know, junior nationals. And so that's where I met other kids, um, who did, who did racing. And I, I got, I started to do other sports too. I want to say I threw field, but, um, you know, that was, we did that for a little bit. Um, I swam again, use air quotes around that too. I, probably looked like a dying fish. Um, and so I got involved much more in terms of, uh, you know, adapted athletics and um, probably by my sophomore year and my sophomore year of high school, you know, you are more, much more involved and you start kind of hearing, everyone just keeps mentioning Illinois. Like that is the, you know, Illinois, Illinois. So I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking, why would I ever go to Illinois? There's nothing but cornfields out there. I live in New Jersey. Like, bagels pizza like i i have my family out here what middle of nowhere no no thank you um i came out to the track camp that adam puts on for um that we put on every summer and i fell in love with this campus i think it was i was like this is where i want to go like this was incredible i got to see some of my idols i got to see josh george who i was obsessed with um and, but, and who was your competitor and a guy in your in your same class and well at the time yeah I mean we were but he had no idea who I was I didn't I just idolized him to the point where when I first got here as a freshman I was like that annoying person who was like Josh George Josh George Josh George uh, because he was just like he was my idol and and I finally was getting to train with him um so so yeah so that's kind of like the trajectory of how I ended up at Illinois because Again, it was never something that I anticipated and, but it was that one question about whether or not I could walk or if I was just had a broken leg completely changed the trajectory of my life. And then sort of the, the fact that I was included and, and able to participate alongside my peers as an equal was something that um, has really stuck with me, you know, years later. Do you think that your coach was searching for somebody in a wheelchair? I mean, this, it just... It sounds strange, right? So he was, he'd seen these other kids. And he's like, hey, are you, are you in a wheelchair? Like, let's do it. Because it was also so accommodating. I mean, you're talking about some of your teammates, like Tatiana McFadden, literally had to go to court in order to, in order to compete with her team. And, yeah. and yet you're, you're somebody coming off the street. I mean, she was, she was a Paralympic, you know, champion. Exactly. And, and they're like, yeah, we don't really want you on here. But then you're some kid off the street that they're like, yeah, you're good. Go, go for it. How did, yeah. do you, do I don't, you, you know, I don't know. That's what's so weird. He wasn't like, he had no idea. Like he really truly didn't even know anything about the sport. Like it was, he just had saw it. And I mean, and when I've talked to him now in the past in like, you know, in the future about it, it's just sort of, he, he's like, 
I just thought it would be cool to include you. Like, it'd be a cool thing for you to do. And I was like, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Tatiana and I actually, we were in school, we we're on this, like, we're the same age. And so we were in high school at the same time. And so, yeah, the, the comparison of our experiences is just incredible that there was, there's such a stark difference in how she was treated and what she had to do just, just to compete, you know, alongside her teammates compared to me. And that I was just, I didn't even have any, I had never even gotten in a racing chair before. I didn't even know that it was so bad. My first track meet, I didn't even know I had to stay in my lane for the events. I was just going all over the place. Like the 400, I just was, I went like from my lane into lane one, like all around the place. They didn't tell me until the end that I had disqualified from every event because they felt so bad that I was so bad. That is awesome. So where were you getting the technique part of it? Because working in a racing chair, there's a ton of technique. And, and so was that from your junior program or did your coach kind of go and brush up or how did that work? That was purely from my junior program. So I was, um, the, the Children's Specialist Hospital Lightning Wheels. I, I mean, there, there's, there was a team of like five or six coaches, but um, you know, Phil Galley was one of the coaches. So Jessica Galley's father, um, Paul Coulter, John and Trish Rochko were, were the three sort of main coaches in terms of, of track. And so they really worked with me to kind of teach me the basics of, of how to wheelchair race. And then being part of a, when you're training with other athletes with disabilities, you're, I was learning from them as well. So like Jessica would show up to practice too. Again, idolized her at the time too. So when, when she would come to training over the summer, it was always great. So I would get like, you know, some practice time with her. Um, and she would teach me, you know, things we would work on other things that maybe some of the younger kids didn't get to do like drafting and, and technique and stuff like that. And so, so I, I picked up a lot pretty quickly because I was in an environment that was, um, you know, really trying to, to make sure that I learned those things. And then I brought that back to my high school where I was working out every day. Um, and that gave me the fitness that when I did show up, when, you know, for our weekly sessions with my juniors team, I was able to focus on the technical side of things and not really worry about the fitness aspect completely because I had already built that with my high school team. When did you finally beat the runners? Because wheelchairs are faster than runners, mm -hmm. but it sounds like you started in a place where you weren't so fast. And when did you finally beat the runners? Um, I would say by my junior year, because that's when I really got, I got very serious at that because I was so committed to going to Illinois then. Illinois became my like passion. It was like, I need to get there. But if I wasn't good enough, there, Adam's not going to want me. Um, Adam will, Adam doesn't remember meeting me for the first time, but I like introduced myself to him and spoke in Washington because I was so obsessed with the, the program and was just like, I want to come here. And he probably was like, who is this kid? Um, he'll say he remembers me, but he doesn't. Um, I know this. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so I think my junior year, so the way we kind of worked it out within the, my high school sort of team, which is, it was a really great model was that, so every other meet I would switch. So I would either do sprints or I would do the distance races. So that, that would be the, um, usually just the 16 and 3,200 for, for high school. Um, so mile and two miles. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for the sprint events, what I would do is I would actually get lane one. Um, for the for the one four one two and four, um, because the runners typically what they would do is they would run 
out towards the fence, like as like the sort of natural progression of how they're running, they don't run in. And I would just stay in one and just take the turn. And so we would, we would switch that way. I never beat a runner in the sprints because that's just not happening. But in the distance events, I think it was around junior year. And I mean, by that point, I had raced against all of these other athletes from, from different schools for now, you know, three years. Everyone knew who I was. The, 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 it was pretty like standard how, like we, we had it worked out and we knew like if, if I was going to pass a runner, I would be the one that I'd go out and do it. They were going to stay in their lane. We never had any issues. And it was, it was something that was just, um, it was really important for my coach that I never raced in an event just as the only wheelchair athlete, because he didn't view me as like the wheelchair athlete who's just running against the clock. Like I was running alongside the other runners because I was a part of the team and I was doing that event. Um, and so that was something that. Which is yeah. different, right? I mean, I talked to Scott Hollenbeck about this. He did that when he was in high school where it was like the sideshow where the, the event stops and then he's going to run a 1500 or a mile or, or whatever it is. And then everybody's going to go back to normal. So you were fully integrated, which mm -hmm. is, which is great. Yeah. And I think, and that to me, I think, you know, my coach, I think because he just didn't know, like, he was like, well, why would, like, he just sort of was like, well, why would you do that differently? You're on this team. Like it was how he viewed it. And I think the, when you, when you start to have conversations with high schools and, and, and state athletic programs, it's like, you need to be willing to have these kinds of conversations about what the rate, like what it would look like. Um, because I went in, I was not a Paralympic athlete when I started, like I was not like, Again, I was this person who had no experience in a racing chair and we had no issues. And so this whole idea that it's unsafe or there needs to be something different kind of falls to the wayside based off of my experience because you can, you can allow for integration and make it be a productive and, and you know, uh, sort of in integrated experience for all participants where everyone is working together and we all sort of understand what we need to be doing, not this like separate sort of thing. And I think, people just sort of fall back on that because it's easy. You can say, okay, they see the visible difference of the wheelchair and say, this is fine. We can just put you in your own event and whatever. And then they don't have to deal with it and they don't have to have those kinds of conversations. And I think it, it's such an easy thing to do. And, and that's, I get very angry when I hear still that there's still these things happening where there are still kids in high school who are having to race separately um, from their teammates. And it's just kind of like this like one off sort of ex like extra thing. And it's like, no, you're excluding this person from the experience of being on the team running alongside their teammates. And there's no reason why you can't have, you can't figure out a way to, to allow for integration. Yeah. And that's, that's the point too, isn't it? That you're excluding them from the experience of being on the team and being a competitor. What was it like? when you actually beat the runners? What were the reactions from the runners too? Because they probably saw this whole progression, right? From the, like the, as you said, this chubby kid yeah. in this oversized chair. You know? Oh God, there's there's this one, oh my God, there's so many embarrassing pictures of me as my first racing chair. Um, you know what? It was actually, it was almost, even though we were competing against each other, there really was this, um, there was this excitement about it as well because there sort of was this recognition that I was working towards this particular goal. Um, and in high school, I really wanted to, to break the state records in um, all of the events. And so that was sort of like, 
I started my freshman year again, never doing this before. And I somehow said I was going to break the state records at some point before I graduated. And of course, and, and it all came down to my, my senior year, the last, <laughs> the last year that I had to do it. Um, and um, yeah, so a lot of, you know, I, I built relationships with even my teammates, but also the runners, but also then runners on the other teams as well. And so they knew what I was working towards and what I was trying to do. And, and that was sort of going past them was that next step towards being able to do what I had kind of set out to do when I first started. And so, so there was a lot of support. There was, I had never, not once did I ever have someone say anything either to any of my teammates or to me, anything in a derogatory manner about why I was out, questioning why I was out there. Again, when you allow for inclusion and integration, it becomes understood and you start to, you really start to understand, like, you understand what is, uh, you know, why you're, why this person's out there, you know, what they're doing, how it's different, all of it, you understand sort of all the mechanics of everything. And you don't have these thoughts about, well, why are they here anymore? Because you, it's, again, it's just part, it's natural. Um, they share in your goal. Do you exactly. remember what those numbers were that you were trying oh. to break? So were you trying to break the 1600 and the, and the 3200? Is that what, because I mean, the hundred, you're never going to break it. One, just two, the, or yeah it was just that well actually so i did i broke it was the 16 was the big one that was the one i wanted um and at the time it was a 409 and i had to run past them in a 409 and i did i ran i think i got it by a second um i think the record has since been broken um to my knowledge i think another student who actually um he's at the university of arizona right now um he came to my he went to my high school specifically because he knew that he would be able to, to join the track team as a wheelchair racer. Um, oh, how cool is he, that? Yeah, he saw sort of the, he knew about my experience. Um, he was also a student, he was, he was on the other juniors team, the uh, North Shore Navigators. And um, he knew about my experience and, and went to my high school because he knew that he would be able to participate, which was like, to me is just a testament to sort of my coach and, and kind of his legacy of what he allowed and made possible for, you know, another student. And, and that was um, really exciting to see. And so I was bummed out when he broke my record, but he broke it and, and, and it was much deserved. Wow. That is, but that is, that is super cool. Cause you had, you know, you had a part in that and, and obviously your coach did some amazing things, right. And just took a step that he didn't have to take took that initiative that helped you and changed the trajectory of your life, which is really what you're hoping for as yeah. a, as a teacher and a coach to be able to help somebody to, to change and improve the direction that they're going. So, you know, in some ways, yeah, he broke your record, but, but you had, you had something to do with that record as the people who were competing with you we're kind of on board with your goal as well, right? The people, the runners who are there were kind of on, on board with what you were doing. So this is, I mean, this is just cool. I'm trying to figure out where to go in some ways from this, because I want to go back to, to some of the early stuff. Now, you're a quadruplet. Yeah. <laughs> Four of you, and mm -hmm. you're the only boy. Yes. So we're talking about your coach shaping your life. How much did growing up with three sisters the same age shape, shape who you are? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, my sisters, and I also have an older brother as well, which 
my brother John often gets forgotten about because there's the quadruplets. Um, and so, so John is, is four years older than us as well. But um, the, the relationship that I have with all my siblings, um, but more so my sisters, because again, we had gone through everything together was, um, you know, they, all of them were very much like my support team in that sort of learning experience about racing and, and kind of helping me throughout that whole process. I remember one time I, I flatted my, my front tire and I had no, I had never changed a tire before, like at that point. And we were in my, my coach's office trip, like in the middle of trying to get this right before a track, me trying to figure out how to like get this tire changed. And this is so embarrassing to say now that I remember it, but I remember I didn't take the front wheel off. I thought I could just change the tire by taking it off. And we're like, what's going on? And I realized I had to take the front wheel off. Um, but like, they were the ones that were helping me do all of these things. Um, they have come to um, all of the, they've, you know, my entire family has come to all of my, um, the trials, uh, Paralympic trials and, and been able to really watch me race there. They, you know, watch all my races um, when, you know, on live streams and things like that. I'm sure they're watching this right now. Um, so hi, hi girls and mom probably. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that, you know, having that support, having that close support system um, was really nice. Um, you know, they would, they would just always be, they're just always there, which is nice. I know that I have, I have people in my corner that, um, you know, especially when I was trying, when I was younger and really trying to figure it out. I mean, it's not like they were experts either, but knowing you have people there, again, just further sort of um, makes the entire experience better. And, and the thing is that for you, there were four of you in, in the hospital. And, and I wonder one, like what your parents were thinking, right? And your parents go, okay, we have one kid, two kids sounds good. All of a sudden you go from one thinking you're gonna have two to having five, like life changes. And then in the hospital, you actually had some sort of an accident six days after, after birth, because you were premature, right? And yeah, but, but so then were your sisters that much more protective of you as a result of that too? The ones really like, don't give my brother a hard time and, and this kind of Yeah, I think in the very like sort of what you think, what you kind of expect. Yeah, my sisters were all very much um, very protective of me, but also very insistent that, you know, again, I was the only person in my, you know, um, initially growing up in my, my grade school and high school that had a visible disability. And so, um, you know, it's pretty obvious being the one person in a wheelchair in your school. Um, and so there is still a lot of unknowns about kind of a lot of other kids have never in, like interacted with or, or sort of knew kind of what they could or couldn't say, especially growing up. And so my sisters were always, um, you know, there to make sure that I was included and that we would figure things, you know, if we were like playing games at recess or things like that, like we would figure out adaptations and like kickball, for instance, like I'm not kicking the ball. Um, that would just look stupid. I'm just trying. So someone like one of them would like kick the ball for me or, you know, um, help if I was in my wheelchair, like get me, like we'd both be pushing, they'd be pushing me in my chair and I'd be pushing as well. And, and so it, there was a very, there was a closeness to everything that we did um, that just sort of was, um, you know, kind of allowed me to have as, you know, quote unquote, normal of an experience that was not different just because of my disability. And were they the ones who were helping to educate people? Cause there's always going to be like being a kid you just don't know things, right? You're just ignorant and you're like, 
oh, well, you know, this kid, you know, there's something wrong with him or whatever. And, and yeah. when your sister's letting stuff in, so, well, this is what's happening. This is, this is. Yeah, they would, they would do that. And it's funny now because it's still to this day, I'm, we're, I'm 31 years old. I'm 31 years old. <laughs> How to check myself there. I'm 31 years old. And there are still people that we'll encounter if we're together that will talk to them instead of talking to me. And now we've gotten it now though. They're like, they will not answer. Like, they'll be like, uh, my brother can talk, you know, he's down, like, you can talk to him. Um, they're, I think they're, they're like tired of it now at this point, they're sort of like, uh, we don't want to, we don't need to speak for him anymore. Um, but yeah, no, they were, they were kind of the best of, of advocates and sort of, um, you know, they knew me best and they were able to, to make sure that, that I, you know, was included, but also that everyone sort of understood kind of the way that things would work and that it might be different, but that was okay. Cause you could still have the, the, a very similar experience, um, for like whatever we were trying to do and, and it would work. Which is pretty amazing when you think of young kids effectively becoming advocates as well, right? And and what an education it was for them too. Yeah, and I think, yeah, because we just, I don't know, you're growing up and you just sort of, you, you don't have all the answers, but you, you're just kind of figuring it out together. And, and it was one of those things where you just kind of, um, yeah, it was not something I think they ever, you know, signed up for, but it was something that they they accepted and and embraced sort of wholeheartedly. And so it's going to be a bit of a bummer that they won't be able to go to Tokyo because they've been everywhere, you said. Yeah, you know, we were, we were, they were all planning on going um, to Tokyo. They were, we had coordinated schedules and we were trying to figure out, I know, like what we were going to do. We were going to try and stay after for a little bit because when I'm in the village at the games, like I'm like locked in and not able to really to do anything. And so, um, you know, try and seeing them after to kind of get to experience everything and, and that's not happening anymore. So, um, so yeah, so it's been, it's kind of a bummer, but the, the hope is that, um, you know, 2024 is, is looking like it's in the cards. I, I don't like to ever, um, you know, we commit to these four-year cycles of, of training and things, and, and it's looking like it's going to happen, especially because now we're, one year removed from from that um so Three years instead of four now yeah yeah so it's looking more it's looking likely that it will you know I'll, I'll at least go for that team and see what happens um and so probably we'll we'll try and plan something in in paris for for that to, to happen which paris doesn't seem it's not hard to twist most people's arm to go to paris think, as well yeah i don't think i'm gonna have too much of a, a hard a hard ask to get them to come so um so yeah so that should be fun Right, but they will be able to tune in and they'll be able to watch and see, you know, and, and, and to see you, I'm sure that you will be, I mean, you guys are, you guys are, are connected in a way that other people really aren't. I'm sure that you'll feel the, feel, feel their support, even though you're 13, 14 hours away, are they all in, well, maybe they're 13 hours, right? Because are they on the East Coast? Are they all, yeah, they're all on the East Coast. So I have to keep okay, track. Okay, so it's 13 them. hours. We're all in different places. And so I have to keep track of where everyone is. Yeah, they um, everyone should be on the East Coast, so it should be it should be easy to to sync up times. Exactly. Now, when when we were getting some photos from you, you said that you don't have that many photos of yourself, but you have tons of photos of your dog. And I thought you were just kind of joking, but oh, I checked out your Instagram. I mean, your, your photos are of your dogs. Oh so, yeah. My Instagram is an account for my dogs. It's not an account for me. I hate social media. Really, yeah. 
So Ace Michael and, and Gambit are your two dogs. Yes, they are. And you've had them since they were puppies? Yeah, I, um, I got Gambit after um, 2012, after the games. Um, I actually I, um, had worked with um, Amanda McGrory's sister who lived in Arizona at the time. She, I'd never had a dog before. I've always wanted one. Um, we didn't have one growing up. Um, and and I'll, I'll just say, my dad was like, you know, he always said, no dog, there's so much work. I don't want to be the one going out, taking out in the rain. And I, I like, you know, when you're growing up, you're like, no, we'll totally do it. I like, he was so right. He was right about all of that. Like, you don't want to take your dog out in the rain, except if you're the only person, you're the one taking it out. Um, so, so yeah. So after London, I was like, I want a dog because I was young and thought that that was great. So I worked with Amanda McGorry's sister who was in Arizona at the time. And she helped me rescue this dog, Gambit. Um, and why Gambit? And, um, I love superheroes and X-Men um, are one of my favorite. Gambit's my, one of my favorite X-Men. And so Gambit got the, was the name. Um, and yeah, she helped me. We found this dog. He was super cuddly and um, slept all the time. She was like, he's the perfect first dog for someone who's never had a dog before. Um, well, he was also filled with worms, which were eating all of his food. And so, well, once we got that fixed and I got him, um, he was the most energetic and hyper dog that is obsessed with fetch, like uh, obsessed. Like I say that and people don't really like, they're like, oh no, haha. Like, I'm like, no, he, he's going to kill himself running after the ball. Like at one point he's just going to drop dead from a heart attack from chasing after a ball. It's like this weird thing in his brain. So I got Gambit. He was great. Loved him. And then a couple of years later, um, yeah, Ace Michael came into my life, um, kind of by whim of, I, my friend was working at the Humane Society. I went to go see her and she was like, oh, do you want to see Michael? Um, that was his name first, Michael. And I was like, sure. I knew I shouldn't have done it because once you see a dog, you're going to like go and try and rescue it. He was the dopiest dog in the entire world. His paws were too big. And yeah, I, I fell in love with him and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I want to like apply for, for Michael. I sound, I've got to prove for him. I thought Michael was the dumbest dog name ever. Like this is a dumb dog name. And so I changed it to Ace because Gambit and Gambit throws cards. I was like, Ace, it's kind of like cool, whatever, some, some like symmetry there. Except when you meet Ace Michael, he is the dumbest dog in the entire world. <laughs> and so he now is Ace Michael because he's kept his name because he is just so dumb. I'm not even sure he really knows his name, to be honest. Like he's just, uh, he's so lovable. Like you can't get mad at him for anything. So, so that's, that's, those two are, they take up, you know, my time. I work so that I can take care of them. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're great. They're right, they're right here and my right behind me. So you can oh, are they really? Okay. Well, they haven't um, made a noise at all. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. The pictures of them. They're, they're oh, not. The pictures. They're probably destroying something in my house right now because it's past their, it's past food time for them. So. Well, please tell them I'm sorry. I guess I should apologize to you as well for, for the mess that you have to go back to. But what, what do they, why, why get the dogs? Why get two dogs? What are the, what purpose do they have for you? And, and why continue to, to publicize them? I mean, are they okay with this? Do they have agents? How does it work? You know, Michael really does need an agent because he's, he's everyone's favorite because he's so dumb looking most of the time. He just makes the best faces um, most of the time. He really needs his own page to be perfectly honest. Gambit, 
will Gambit will sit still long enough if you have a ball in your hand. Otherwise, he wants no part of any of the pictures I force them to take. You really should, if you're like stalking my Instagram, you should look at the Christmas photos I make them take every year because they look, <laughs> every year I pull out a different, we do a different costume theme and I'm sure they're both in their head are just like, oh God, he's making us do these stupid things again. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, I did. I I did see those, and I did think that same thing of like, this is <laughs> it's embarrassing now become, these poor dogs. It's now become to the, it's gotten to the point where people expect these pictures of these dogs in different costumes. So I have to try and one up myself every year. I do already have a theme for what we're going to do this year, so it's very exciting. Um, okay, I won't push you for that because it sounds like it's a secret. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to, I'll say it's Star Wars theme. We're going to go Star Wars theme because I do like, I love Star Wars. So, so we're going with Star Wars theme. So use your imagination, especially with Ace Michael, because he's, he's really going to be the star of the, of the photos. And is he okay being the star? I don't think he knows what's going on. He just sort of sits there. <laughs> he lets you kind of move him around. <laughs> but eventually he does sort of, he's like, he just wants to lay down at some point and he just sort of like puts... Like he just sort of has this like mean mug on his face. Like why? Like I just want to go lay down over there. So so we'll see. We'll see. But I'm I'm very excited for this year's theme. And is it just Christmas or is it Halloween as well? You know, it's usually just Christmas. Um, the theme this year is more Halloween appropriate. So we might we might do we might do two costumes this year. Who knows? Okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to pressure you into anything. I know his fans would love it. So, so we'll see. Plus it like, again, I, it gives me something else to post other than myself. So, so it's always great. It is pretty funny that you talk about his fans. He was, he's, he's very popular. Everyone's like, most people that when they see me, they're like, you know, you'll talk to other racers and they're just like, I love your dogs. And I'm like, yeah, that's the only thing I post. So that's, that's, let's just keep the conversation about them. Does that make it a little bit easier in some ways that you don't have to talk about yourself? You can just talk about your dogs. Oh yeah. Cause you, I could go on and we could have had a whole hour long conversation about the dogs. So, um, so maybe next time you can have me just talk about the dogs for a full hour. If, if everyone wants to hear about that. Cause yeah, it's just nice. It's, it's, it's sometimes I think also on a more serious note, I think everyone talks so much about racing and like, sometimes I'm just so bored, but I'm like, I don't want to talk about that race anymore. Let's talk about something fun. Like my dumb dog that did this dumb thing. So, um, so it's fun to just be able to like do that and, and, uh, and just, yeah, have something else to talk about. Well, it's probably also relieving some of the pressure of it too, right? Of, cause you're working really hard. You're with a team, you have goals and you come back and the dogs don't really care about any of those things. Oh yeah, no, it's great. No matter how, how many fourth place finishes I get, I come home and and they love me, which is great. Everyone else still loves me too, but they don't care what place. Like if I got first place or I got fourth place, they, as long as they're, they're getting played with and getting fed and pet, they're like so happy. Um, and it is one of those things that when I'm gone for these extended periods of time, it's like, I am so excited to get home and see them. It's like, um, you know, usually I, I kind of need a day, like when I first, especially because we sometimes land at weird times, I need like a day to like, re-get my life organized before I'm ready for the chaos and onslaught that they usually cause when they come like into my house. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's nice that I, like, I, I always, am like, I miss them. I get updates all the time. Um, sometimes my friends, um, will watch them and send me updates too, which is really nice. Um, and so, so yeah, so I know they're always well taken care of and then I can come home and, 
and it's it's nice that they don't care how I did. And it's they are your sense of home in a lot of ways, which yeah. is so important because it's so easy to feel like you're bouncing around and you're just doing this and doing that and home will be at some later time in your life. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. It's like, I, I now feel like I've gotten to the point where I like make decisions about what I want to do for races. I'm like, oh, that's a long time away from the dog. So I really want to do like, do I want to be gone that long? Like, and, and other people are like their dogs. And I'm like, no, they're my dogs. Like I, I, I miss them. I want to see them. Uh, which is great. So, okay. So let's just, we're, we've got to wrap it up sometime soon. So let's, uh, let's, let's bring it back to Tokyo. It looks like you're, it looks like you were, you were going great at trials. It looks like you're, you're doing really well. Do you feel, do you feel more prepared going into trials? And you also in, what was it in, in Rio, you actually switched to the BMW chair, didn't you? Yeah. I think it was immediately beforehand, right? Which can be really hard to jump into a new chair. Yeah. We won't be, we won't be jumping into a new chair this time. I'm, I'm keeping, if anything, I've learned that I need to like trust the process and and stay consistent with what I have and what works. And I know everything that I'm doing right now, even though there are some things, like I said, I'm always thinking about what I want to maybe fine tune and maybe make a little bit better. Um, I know what I have works and my experience at trials kind of showed, like kind of helped show that to me. Um, I was able to, you know, push pretty well in the, in, in my, the, my class events, the, the one, four and eight, which was nice. Um, I felt pretty good there. And so imagine having a full field of other guys as well. I know that I can kind of flip that switch and that will be, those will be fun races to have. And then the 15 and five and marathon, um, those are always just those, the race, like kind of the racing that's involved in them and sort of um, it's not always just like what we, what, you know, Daniel pulled us to, you know, he's just pulling at, you know, 19, 19, five for, for those lap after lap after lap, which was incredible and very appreciative, Daniel. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, but, but yeah, I know that, you know, those are pretty good times or like pretty good speeds to be holding. And I know that if I can do that there, then it's, it's just kind of transferring that into the, the race setup and just to sort of, um, get out there and have fun with those races and see i know you know i'm not wholeheartedly focusing on them but you know it's going to be fun to just get out there and and kind of see what happens well i mean sort of describe the difference between racing because you said because it sounds like you're running a lot of races right one four eight fifteen and five and then the marathon so (laughs) all of those races pretty much all of the races you can run short of the the universal uh relay right so yeah What's, what's the difference between, because a lot of people might not know this, the difference between racing in your class as a T53, the people who don't have the torso versus the people who do have you know, the torso, the ability to move their upper body, to engage some of those bigger muscle groups and those kinds of things. But, and what's it like in those races? Are those more exciting in some ways for you? I, I would say they're exciting in, in the sense that <laughs> they're a lot more painful sometimes because again, there's, those guys can do so much more with their body. And so in those races, they can put on stronger attacks and, and they, can, they can do things, especially that last lap where everyone's just, it's just a free for all and everyone's going. Um, but it makes it fun because it's like challenging yourself to try and, um, you know, 
see how long you can stay and see if you can get in that right spot and make a move. Cause I know, again, like I said, I have that rolling acceleration. And so if I can get up to that speed and get locked in behind someone, you know, you're locked in and you're good to go. And so it's, it's, it's the fun side of racing where not that you don't do that in the, the class events either, but th- those events are shorter typically. So usually you're in your lane and in those events much in, for me, I view them much more as just sort of um, a test of overall fitness. And it's like, who sprints the fastest? Like that is just kind of how the race is run. And it's like, just go and just sprint and then 400 meters and you're done. Um, there's no tactics or any kind of race stuff involved. And so the longer distance stuff is as painful as they can be because you'll have these ebbs and flows of, okay, you're going to be going, someone's going to decide to put on a random attack and you're going to go 19 miles an hour for 200 meters and see where you fall in the, the pack. And then you're going to drop down to, you know, 11, 12 miles an hour for two laps until someone else decides to make a move. So, so those are fun to, for me because they allow me to sort of, to, to just play around on the track and just to have some fun. Um, and then the marathon is the last event. So um, you just kind of always do that because you can. Yeah, no, exactly. Which, which is always fun. And it sounds like the marathon is going to be one of those events too, where it's not going to be helpful for you in the beginning because it is mostly downhill at the beginning. My favorite. And then it's mostly uphill at the end, you know, you go out and turn around and come back. And so, uh, so you're going to have to keep your, keep it all going. Right. (laughs) It'll be fun. You know, I always, I view the marathon at the the games as, as yeah, that just, it's another experience to race and it's just, you get out there with, with a lot of the guys. And so, especially someone like uh, Ernst Van Dyke, who doesn't really do track stuff that much and doesn't do track stuff anymore. um, Getting out there with him again is always fun. Um, and then you just kind of race everyone that you've been racing. And it's just kind of a nice way to end, end the games. Yeah, exactly. Well, Brian, this has been absolutely awesome to be able to catch up with you and, and learn what you're doing, learn about your dogs. This is, this is great. They will make it into the, into the coverage. I promise you. So good, good. That is yeah. good. To hear. Ace Michael sure. and Gang will be very happy. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, if I have to talk to Ace Michael's, uh, uh, you know, agent beforehand, we'll get it all cleared and we'll make it all work. But, but no, this is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for all the hard work. I hope I didn't give you a hard time about the fourth place thing because oh, I love you're working hard. No worries. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. And I will look forward to watching you. Thank you to all of you for joining us for, for checking it out. If you didn't get a chance to hear the full interview with Brian, you can go to the One Revolution page. This will be archived there. This this whole interview will be archived there. It will also become, we'll edit it into a regular podcast. So it'll be on YouTube, it'll be on Spotify, it'll be on Apple, all the usual suspects. As per usual, if, you know, the greatest thing you can do for us is to tell your friends, to tell your friends that, hey, this is great, great people, check it out. Uh, Also, if you can like us, if you can follow us, that would be wonderful. So we will look forward to seeing you again soon. And Brian, go fast. Thanks a ton. Yep. Bye. Have a good one.